John chapter 3, verses, we're going to start in verses 22. Last week we talked about the new birth, verse 1 through 21, and we're going to be starting 22 in this portion of chapter 3. We're going to see John's final testimony. <clears throat> we saw a few of John's testimonies throughout all of chapter 1. Uh, the beginning of this gospel, uh, he was one of the witnesses, the eyewitnesses that, um, that saw Christ, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, declaring Jesus as the Lamb of God, declaring the deity of Christ, and this is going to be John's final testimony in the gospel that we hear about John the Baptist, um, not John the gospel writer, but John the Baptist, his final testimony about who Jesus is and the deity of, of Christ. Again, there's, there's a lot of little things um, I do want to point out. Again, speaking of who Christ is, building our faith, our foundation, and uh, you, know, uh, you know, just knowing who our God is. So uh, it's super important to me. So last week what we studied that Jesus taught about this new birth, a, a, a whole new nature that, that we need. And he spoke to Nicodemus about the necessity to be born again. It is necessary to be born again to what? To see and to enter the kingdom of God. And we saw that salvation, according to Jesus, that salvation, you know, it doesn't come by good works. It doesn't come by religious ways. It's simple. Salvation comes from the sacrifice of Christ and believing in him. And, and Nicodemus was very uh, confused about this because of his religious ways. We see a lot of that confusion nowadays. Uh, but at the end of the day, sinners have to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior in order to receive this new birth. The new birth meaning what? To be born from above. To be born into the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born into the kingdom of God. It's a whole new nature that we need because you know, Christ didn't come for man to receive reformation, to improve our old nature. He came to give us a whole new nature. There's a saying that if you are born twice, you will only die once. If you are born once, you'll die twice. If you are born twice, why? Because we're born once in our fleshly nature, and then we are born twice in the new nature that God has for us, and therefore we're, we will die and be with eternity, be with God for eternity. But if you're only born once and you stay in that sinful nature, there will be, you'll die twice. Once in this life, and the second life is an eternal death. So thought that'd be pretty cool to share. So we saw Nicodemus' spiritual ignorance in what Jesus was saying you know, again, showing us his spiritual condition that his understanding was darkened. And it, it just left me with the question, you know, did, did Nicodemus ever come to the understanding of the new birth? What do we see in Scripture? Like, did, what happened to him? Did he ever believe in, in Christ as the Lord and Savior, as his Lord and Savior? Did he ever come to the full understanding of who Christ was? Well, here we're going to see a little bit about that today. Uh, we, we end up seeing Nicodemus one, again. He, uh, not specifically, it's not going to name him, but I'll point that out to you guys. Um, we're going to see today about this confusion that arose between John's disciples and a certain Jew a certain Jew concerning this new birth. So here we will also see, you know, again, John the Baptist, he's going to give us, he gives this, this same message, this same testimony. A lot of it is very relatable to what we studied last week from verses 1 through uh, 21 and what, everything that Jesus said. Uh, a lot of it is very familiar in this same uh, testimony that, that John the Baptist gives and it, it being his final testimony, it's all going to be very similar, and I'll point those out for you. So it's, um, it's, a, it's kind of like a two-fold uh, chapter. So first Christ, and then John the Baptist, but uh, we'll get deeper into it right now. So let's begin. We're going to begin in verse 22. 
verse 22, it says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Uh, You know, notice John the Gospel writer here, he continues his account on the life of Jesus with the emphasis of what Jesus did in Judea. But all the other Gospels, they, they, they focus on the work of Jesus in, in the Galilee region. And, and we see there's, there, there's differences throughout the Gospels. We see the, the differences because it, it, has to be, uh, it has to do with you know, the different experiences and the different accounts of each person that wrote them. Again, not in contradiction to each other. Even though there's differences, it has to do with the different experiences, different areas that they were with the the Lord, not in contradiction to each other, but it's all for a different purpose. And again, it's all leading to the same message of Christ. Um, But I want to point something out here. Notice in Judea, Jesus remained with them, baptizing. He remained with them and baptized. We see Jesus uh, together here with his disciples, also doing what? The work of baptizing. Baptizing, which was similar to what? The work of John the Baptist, right? There's a reason they call him John the Baptist, as he baptized. And this is, you know, this is important because Jesus here is showing us the importance of John's work how important it is by recognizing it, by honoring it. And, and it, it's, he, he continues the work of John uh, the Baptist and showing us how important as we seek what to, to follow the life of Christ as, as Christians, as we seek to know Christ and, and, be, and, and, and see his example and how we are supposed to live. Here we see Jesus baptizing showing us the importance of water baptism. It's important. And, and baptism represents to the church a continuation of the importance of the baptism of repentance. The baptism of repentance. Let me explain. Matthew 3, 2, we see John the Baptist begins with the message what? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And since he was called to prepare the way of the Lord, in Matthew 4.17, we see Jesus began his ministry with the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The exact same message. And so it made sense for Jesus to continue here and practice the symbol of repentance that John used throughout his baptizing ministry. The symbol of repentance, baptism, Remember that. Note, it, it speaks of this in Acts 19.4. Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So what do we see? Water baptism represents and it symbolizes what? The effect of the new birth the effect of the new birth through repentance, through believing in Christ. This, the, the, the effect of us being born again, we, we prove that and we show that through water baptism, our repentance. So, uh, just a quick thought, you know, if, if baptism, as we see here, you know, if it represents and if it symbolizes our repentance, then how can a baby's baptism be of any importance? How can it be of any value? Right? What do we, what do we hear? If, what religion baptizes babies? Because can a baby repent? You know, ask that to the next Catholic you come across that challenges you about baby baptism. There is an age of accountability and you need accountability to have repentance. There is an age and, and babies cannot repent because they don't know what they're doing. They don't have that accountability. So we know that baptism represents and symbolizes, notice, the effects of the new birth. 
This is important to keep in mind because, as we're going to see in a bit, it brought some kind of confusion. Remember, there was a, 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 some conflict between the, the, the um, John's followers and a certain Jew about the new birth of being born of water and spirit. There was some confusion in thinking that born of water meant baptism or some kind of Jewish purification, bringing us back into connection with Nicodemus. Why? Because who did Jesus say that to? Nicodemus. So here, Nicodemus is questioning, does it mean water baptism? What does it mean? So notice, let's continue, verse 23 through 24. Now John also, also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there. And there came, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. So we see that John's work of baptizing was still showing itself very effective. So notice verse 25 through 26 where the confusion begins. Then they arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Notice Verse 25, if, if you translate it in its literal translation, it can also be read as there arose a question between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew concerning the ceremonial cleansing. Could this certain Jew be Nicodemus? Absolutely. Maybe still searching after truth. You know, because Christ and his message of being born left them baffled and, and gave them the desire to seek and search. And as I mentioned la- last study, many people like today, like Nicodemus, don't really know what it means to be born again. They don't know the, the message of, of this new birth. And so there's confusion about baptism and religious ceremonies. Don't we see that a lot today? This confusion between you have to be this way, you have to do this, you have to baptize your baby for him to be saved. The Catholics believe that the reason why they baptize the baby, they think that that means the water in being baptized into uh, water and then spirit. So they feel like the baby, we need to baptize him in water so he has the water and then as he gets older, he'll be baptized in the spirit. That's not what Jesus meant. If you remember what Jesus meant in last study, um, looking at what he was telling Nicodemus and then questioning his knowledge on the Old Testament in verse 10, referring to an, an Old Testament prophecy, which was Ezekiel 36 on what it meant about water and spirit. And so there's a lot of confusion of, about that. So maybe he thought born of water meant baptism or this Jewish uh, purification. So we see that Jesus told Nicodemus about the new, new birth, you know, really spoke to him. It really, it really spoke to him. So he, here he is seeking to know more about this. And we'll, we're going to continue to see more of him uh, throughout chapter 7 and then chapter 19. And, and eventually we do see Nicodemus making his way to a full revelation of who Jesus is. So notice what John the Baptist does. And, and note this, that if, if baptism was necessary for salvation, if it was necessary, this would be the place for the Bible to say so. This very moment, that if it was necessary for salvation, this is where it would say. Instead, John, notice what he, he points his disciples and this certain Jew back to Christ. He points them to Jesus and adds emphasis on what Jesus spoke about in verses 15 through 18 about believing. About believing. So he, again, giving the same message that Jesus testified about himself. Believing in the Son. Verse 27, 
John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And remember last study in verse 13 when Jesus told Nicodemus, what I am saying to you is true. And it is a reality when Jesus said that. How did Jesus confirm his authority to say these things? He said, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. John here practically is saying the same thing, testifying to the authority of Christ, the authority of Jesus. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Here, John the Baptist is reminding his disciples that he knew who he was. And he says, you guys have heard me say this. I am not the Christ. He, he knew who he was, but guess what? He also knew who Jesus was. He says, I am not the Christ but I will point to the Christ. I will point to him. Notice the analogy he gives in verse 29. He says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Notice, back in verse 26, what did his disciples do? They came to him in some kind of panic, saying, Jesus was baptizing, and what? All are coming to him, John. They're all going to him, and he's baptizing. Pretty much saying, look, Jesus, he's putting you your ministry out of business. John, what are you going to do about it? What do we see here? He, He... we see that th- this doesn't really bother John one bit, obviously. And, and John would not allow anything to get in the way of, this, of his mission, what, what he was sent to do. You know, to announce that the Messiah had come, to announce his coming, and then what? Then, when he comes, he steps back, and he lets all the attention be focused on him. That's what he was called to do. That's what we're called to do. You know? We are to announce and give the same message, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and announce his coming, his return. His second coming, it's going to be in judgment. While there's still time, we are living, we are in a grace period right now. When Christ died, to when the rapture happens, there is a pause in God's time clock. We are living in a grace period right now until he returns, until he returns from his church and then he, he takes us, the Holy Spirit withdraws and then we go into the seven year of tribulation. And so here in this analogy, when John says, the friend of the bridegroom, John here was explaining to his disciples that, you know, he was like the best man at the wedding. He wasn't the bridegroom. He was saying, I am the friend of the bridegroom, practically saying, I am the best man. And therefore, he's not to be the focus of attention and making that so clear to his disciples. And I want to make that so clear to all of us that we are not to be the focus of attention. We are not to be. And you see, back in that time, the Jewish wedding customs of of those days, the friend of the bridegroom would pretty much arrange many of the details of the wedding. He would do a lot of the planning for the bridegroom, and his main purpose was actually to bring the bride to the groom. That was one of his main purposes, to make sure his bride made it to the wedding. No runaway bride here. His main purpose was to bring the bride to the groom and the friend of the bridegroom was never to be the main focus of or the attention of the wedding. Imagine you having your own wedding and your best man is getting all the attention. At my wedding, 
There's no way I was going to let my best man have all the attention, you know? But just imagine, that that's kind of what he's saying here, and the fact that we know that the bridegroom represents Jesus here, this is another way that the Bible shows us that Jesus is God, representing him as the bridegroom. It shows us his deity because what? Throughout the Old Testament, God was who was mentioned as the husband of Israel. God, Yahweh. Jehovah Yahweh was mentioned as the husband of Israel. Notice Isaiah 54, 5. It says, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Isn't Christ referred to as the Holy One? The Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Hosea 2.19, I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. And so you see, John the Baptist, he would have been you know, very well aware of the Old Testament and, and that Israel was regarded as the bride of Yahweh as the bride of, of, of Christ. The church, what do we see today? The church is referred to as the bride of Christ. So he is the groomsman, or excuse me, the bridegroom. I don't know weddings, but the bridegroom. And so John knew who Jesus was and continued to point to him with confidence, trying to explain every single way that he could to his disciples, to, to the people of Israel, that God has come. He is here with us. He is Christ, our Lord. And he knew with this with confidence. Therefore, John says, this joy of mine is fulfilled. This joy of mine is fulfilled. My ministry, he's saying, I, whatever is happening, if, if I stop baptizing, if I lose all my people, my ministry is fulfilled. This joy of mine is fulfilled. And John wants all his followers, he wanted all of his followers to know that all these things that were happening because of Jesus, what? Fulfilled his joy. It fulfilled it. And you see, some people might say that, you know, John the Baptist lost his ministry and so he was joyful about it. But I see it more as that he was joyful because he lost his ministry to Christ. But did he really lose his ministry? Was not his ministry to prepare the way of the Lord? Did he not do that? Did he not fulfill his ministry? He didn't lose it. He, he got the joy from fulfilling it. And I'm telling you right now, it is a joyful fulfillment when we fulfill our ministries and when we are face to face with the Lord and he says, welcome thy good and faithful servant. Imagine that, the joy and the fulfillment that we will receive from that. And I, I believe that that's what John is feeling here. And so what was he able to say? Notice verse 30. He says, He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist, he understood it was good for him to become less visible, to become less known, so that what? Jesus would become more visible. So that Jesus would become more known. Sometimes we need to move out of the way, don't we? And so here we see that John understood what was happening. And how, how many religious leaders, how many Christians today forget about this? You know, it's not about us. It's not how big our ministries are. It's, it's never about how big 
our calling is and what, how big God can use us, it, it's always going to be about Christ and his ministry. Whether you are called to save one soul, that is what Christ gave you and you should fulfill it with joy. It's never ours to claim. Remember, the glory is never ours to claim. God will not share his glory. He will not share his glory. And so what? He must increase and we must decrease. But notice, John the Baptist here also shows us that it's possible to be popular. It's possible to be successful in the ministry and what? Still be humble about it. He had fame. He had crowds that most what celebrity pastors today wouldn't even dream of having. And we see a lot of celebrity pastors today, a lot of pastors with huge congregations. And a lot of them would desire the crowds that John the Baptist would draw. Yet what? John here was an example of genuine humility pointing to Christ. In, in, he never once took credit for what he did or for what happened. He pointed to Christ. And yes, there are those kind of pastors today. There are many of those examples that are still today. I feel so privileged on sitting under our senior pastor here. And I see many senior pastors with huge congregation. But for example, Raul. He is the most down-to-earth, humble person that I could know. And he has a congregation of 5,000, sometimes 7,000. He's on the radio. And he's done so much work, but he doesn't count it all as big. Why? Because it's all Christ. This place runs by grace because of Christ, because of, because of, of the Lord. And, and I remember the first thing that I was told from him when I, when I got into ministry, when, I, um, when he called me and, and told me to come up to pastoral, he says, careful with pride. That is the downfall, the number one downfall of a lot of leaders and a lot of pastors. Be careful with pride because you will fail in your ministry. And it reminds me of 1 Peter um, in chapter 5 when God says what? He says, humble yourself under my mighty hand. And what? I will exalt you. I will exalt you. If you try to exalt yourself, you will fail. And John completely, humbly gave all the glory to Christ. And notice next how John, he concludes his testimony about Jesus. Notice verse 31 through 32. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the, of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. Does that sound familiar from what Jesus said? In the last study, if you were here, you know, notice John wanted everyone to know where Jesus came from. Why? Again, declaring that he, Jesus, is God, the Son of God. What, remember in verse 13 when Jesus said, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Here, John the Baptist confirms the same thing again. Jesus was different from everybody else. Because why? He and only he has descended from heaven. He and only him. Jesus wasn't just some spiritual, wise, moral, good person. You know, he was the one true God. He was the one true God. Notice Jesus is also, what does he say? Jesus is also above all. Above all. So he's not only different from everybody else, but he is greater than everybody else. He is above all. 
And I like this quote from William Barclay. He said, If we want information about a family, we will get it at first hand only from a member of that family. If we want information about a town, we will get it at first hand only from someone who comes from that town. So then if we want information about God, we will get it only from the Son of God. And if we want information about heaven and heaven's life, we will get it only from him who comes from heaven. And this is so true and why I love studying about the deity of Jesus. So that our faith and our belief in him becomes stronger. The more we know about him, guess what? The more you know about him, the more you know about God. The, know, the, the more you're going to know about our eternal destination and what heaven is like. What does he say? I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, what? There are many mansions. I want a mansion. <laughs> he goes to prepare paradise for you. Why? Because he knows. He, he, he came from heaven. He knows. He has the authority to say these things. So do you believe him? Do you believe him as God? But notice John says in verse 32, Again, he says, and no one, at the end of it, he says, and no one receives his testimony. John here, by a word of prophecy, he testified that Jesus, uh, or he anticipated that Jesus would be rejected throughout his ministry. Although he came from heaven, although he testified of the truth, but relatively, John says, no one, no one received his testimony. It's interesting that John, that John said no one because we, we do see many witnesses who have received his testimony. But notice verse 33. It says, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. That's why I'm here. That's why we are here. That's why you're here. And this is why we do what we do as Christians. We certify that God is true, right? As Christians, we have received his testimony. We've accepted his testimony. We believe it to be true. And we certify that God is true. So by John saying no one, no one received his testimony doesn't mean absolutely no one. He meant it comparatively. Compared, compared to what? What did he compare it to? What, what do we see throughout the gospel? Oh, the multitudes would come to Jesus. The 5,000, the 4,000, so many would come to Jesus, but no one. John is saying no one. Compared to the crowds that came to him, compared to the, the nation of Israel, he only had 12 disciples. Why didn't he have 100 disciples? Compared to the human race, those who received Christ's testimony were so few, so few that it, it grieved John the Baptist. And it's crazy how he saw this. It grieved him. And so in his grief, he said none. You know, try holding a, a, like a Bible study. You invite everyone. Let's say you invite a thousand people, but five show up. Would not that wouldn't that upset you, or wouldn't that grieve you? So, I, I would be like, yeah, no one showed up. <laughs> five people showed up, but it, he's comparing it to the world. How is it that? The Bible always speaks about it being not a multitude. It's never the multitude. The Bible says it's always going to be a remnant. There's always a remnant, meaning a small amount of people. What does the Bible say also? Also, 
the road to heaven is narrow. But the road to hell, what? It's wide open. So many. So no one received his testimony. And so we know that there are those who have received his testimony. You, me, And there is a reason that you are here today because what? You desire to receive his testimony. There's a reason you came here today. The reason you go to church, there's a reason you read your Bible, there's a reason you pray because you have received his testimony. Those are all effects of your new birth. Those are the the effects that show that you are born again because you receive the testimony and you believe when Jesus says, Pray to me. You believe him when he says, I have all authority. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. You believe that. And I pray that as you receive it, what? You apply it to your life. You apply it so that the way you live your life will what? Certify that God is true. Have you ever had a job that you had to get certified for something? I used to work for insurance. I had to get all my certifications and, and get my license to be able to sell insurance. And I had to learn about it. I had to grow to be able to sell it. I had to, I had to know my stuff to become certified. I had to do this and This is why God gives us his book of the law, his instruction to certify us. He gives us his testimony. He gives us everything we need to be certified in in proving that God is true. You see, you become certified when you believe, when you believe in Christ, when you become born again. And the word certified here means to confirm, authenticate, to place beyond doubt, to prove one's testimony to a person that he is what he professes to be. That word certified in the Greek, that's what it means. Therefore, when you believe, you set your seal to the testimony of Jesus, to the testimony to prove his testimony to prove that God is true. And the best way to do that is by the change that people see in our lives. You say you're a Christian. Are you Christ-like? Would you dare forgive someone that has wronged you? Would you dare love someone or show love to an enemy of yours? What does Romans 12, 20 through 21 say? If your enemy is hungry... Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Because why you are only a a true Christian can do something like this. Only a true born again Christian can do something like that. An act of love like this, is it's not some natural, normal human nature thing to do. It is a supernatural thing to do. To show love to an enemy? What? Proving the existence of God. Can a man change a man's heart? Can any of you change a person's heart? No. But God can. And you're proof of that. Remember, we used to live sinfully in our sinful ways, but yet God changed that. And how is it that sin is so attractive and yet we don't desire it anymore? That is a a divine healing from the Lord. That is a new birth that he's given you, a new creation That is proof of the existence of God. Certifying that God is true. When we do things that people are like, how can you forgive me? 
I just did you wrong. Like, how can you so easily forgive me? You know, I, I'm a new creation in Christ. I've been given a new birth. In my old ways, yeah, I would not have forgiven you. But in my new ways, as a Christian, I can forgive you. I can love you. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. Notice again, the reliability of the words of Jesus. The words of Christ here are unique. The words of Christ are reliable because he speaks the words of God. He speaks the words of Jehovah, Yahweh. And in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, confirms this to us. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir over all things, through whom he, who, through whom ha, he has made the world. He speaks to us by his Son. God has sent, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Meditate on this. Every time you read the words of Christ, people always ask me, how does God speak to you? I've never heard God. My question to them is, have you read the words of Christ? Have you opened the word of God? Hence, the word of God. Have you, have you, no, no, you'll never hear God. Every word that Jesus speaks is the word of God and he is speaking plain and clear. He is speaking directly to all of you guys. Sometimes all you need to do is listen. He speaks to each one of us individually. And so if he has the words of God and, and God speaks to us through his son, are you going to believe his word? Do you believe everything he says? Is God a liar? Because if you don't believe 100% of everything, and you maybe believe 99%, there is no in-between. It's either you are for me or you are against me. There is no in-between. So if you are for me, you believe me. If you are against me, you are calling me, practically calling God a liar. And that's why the message is believe. Believing. Why? Because Jesus said that he is the way that he is the truth, that he is the life. He is the very embodiment of truth, and he cannot lie. He cannot, God is, he is infallible. He cannot make mistakes. God is immutable. All his attributes, he cannot change. He says, I am the same God yesterday that I am today. He is the same God that spoke to Moses is the same God speaking to us. When I read the story of Moses or David, when God speaks, it's incredible. And so do we believe? He has proven that to us. He has proven that to us through his son, Jesus on who he is. Turn to Hebrews really quick. I want to read you something. Um, uh, Hebrews chapter chapter 6. Let's start in verse 13. 
for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater. King, think about that. Who do we sometimes swear by? Who is the greatest in the universe? Sometimes we swear by our parents or something like that to get someone to believe it. But sometimes we swear by God because there's no one greater. So look, he, he could swear by no one greater. So what? He swore by himself. Only God can do that. He swore by himself saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you and multiply, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, immutable, there's the word, immutable of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which, it, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for the refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. He has proven that to us through his promises kept. And what is the greatest promise that he has given us, that he gave Israel? The greatest promise was the Messiah, the Redeemer. And that promise was fulfilled. And it's funny because right now Israel does not think that promise has been fulfilled. They don't think their Messiah has come yet. But the word of God is very clear. The book of Hebrews was written for the Hebrews to believe that the Messiah has come. And he is Christ. He has given us so much to believe in him. Yet we know that what? So many, even after knowing the truth, will reject him. And I don't understand that. Think about it. Even knowing the truth, even knowing that I will give you eternal life, I came to die for you, and all you have to do is believe in me. They reject him. Men love darkness rather than light. They love the lie rather than the truth. And although seeing the light, they do not come to the light. What did Jesus say in the past chapter? Although seeing the light, they did not come. And I don't understand. And so what? There will be a price to pay for rejecting the true testimony of Jesus. Notice verse 35 through 36. It says, The, father's love, the Father loves the Son, and he has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And notice again, he who believes has everlasting life. In order for the sinner to be born again, what must he do? Simply believe, showing us again the recipient of God's love that we cannot benefit from God's love until we first believe in him. We cannot benefit from it. Someone once told me, why is it that I pray to God and sometimes I ask him for things and he does not answer? And I don't know why I asked him I asked him the question, do you believe in him? Well, yeah. No, do you believe? How can you benefit from God's love? How can you benefit from the goodness of God if you don't believe in him? You, you can't. 
You know, God answers prayers, but he does, and sometimes he does it all according to his will. But if you want prayers answered, a lot of times what is God is trying to teach us and what he requires us to do is believe in him. Believe that he is the one true God and that if he desires to answer my prayer, blessed be the name of the Lord. If he does not desire to answer my prayer because he is God and you still believe in him, blessed be the name of the Lord. That is the heart that God is looking for. To believe in, again, means to trust in, to fully rely on him, to cling to him, to cling to him. And sometimes we're in a position, I've been placed in positions where I was just clinging and sometimes just holding on to the hem of his garment. Almost letting go, but you cling to him and you hold on. And he came through every single time. And so this is why it amazes me that people do not believe. And notice, whoever does not believe, the end of verse 36, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. The message is simple. If you believe, you will have everlasting life. If you don't, you shall not see life. And John explains this because Jesus is the man from heaven. Jesus is God from heaven, the one whom we are to believe in. And there is a heavy price to pay for rejecting him. And I don't think people quite understand the wrath of God. Why? Because so many pastors and leaders tend to avoid this subject. They avoid speaking about the wrath of God because of fear of losing their congregation or, just be, or maybe even because they don't believe it themselves and they preach prosperity and they preach the love of God without the need of repentance so they leave out the wrath of God. If God is love, why would he judge? And so their doctrine is, is wrong It becomes replaced with various other things to just completely avoid the subject. You cannot teach about the love of God without teaching about his wrath. The wrath of God. Because what? The wrath goes hand in hand with, with judgment, and, and, and it is as much an expression of his goodness and his love. In fact, the, the love of God is, it, it, uh, excuse, the, the wrath of God are pretty much, the love and the wrath are two sides of the same coin. Let me explain that one who is infinitely good as God is, should rightly abhor and hate evil, right? Because evil, what it's the enemy of good, it's the opposite of good. Evil is like, it's like a parasite. It's like a, a cancer towards goodness, right? It feeds on and it destroys what is good. Therefore, God rightly and justly directs his wrath at evil. At evil. What if he didn't? Think about it. The, 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 the biblical doctrine of God's wrath, it, it's rooted in the doctrine of God as, as the all-good, as the all-wise, as the loving creator. It is rooted in the same doctrine and he absolutely must hate everything that spoils or damages his beautiful creation. If you created something, if say you built a beautiful computer, a 
supercomputer and it took you years and you, you put it together perfectly and then it gets a virus. Think about it. Would you not hate that virus and try to get rid of it? Sin is a virus to us and God will not allow it to spoil or damage us. Especially to us. Why? Because we bear his image. We are made, we are created in the image of God. Why do you think Satan hates us so much? Why do you think Satan is constantly putting thoughts in your head to bring you back into the world or keep you from believing in God? There's doubt. There's confusion. God is not the the author of confusion. But Satan is constantly attacking. Why? Because you are made in the image of God and he hates anything that has to do with God and his creation and wants to destroy it. But God will not allow it. So there has to be wrath. There has to be judgment. And so let's say if God did not hate murder, for example, he would not be good or loving. If he, if he did not hate child abuse, he would not be good or loving. Say he did not judge those people that abused a child and he just let them go. Would he be loving? No. Many, so many people don't like talking about this and, and, and if God is not utterly determined to, to root out from all his creation through the act of wrath and judgment and all that is harmful and destructive to it, then he is neither loving nor good nor wise. If he is not determined to destroy what is harming us, how can he say that he loves you? The prophet Nahum explained the nature of God's wrath in this way. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, he said, God is jealous. So many people will look at that and be like, why do I want to serve a jealous God? Why would you not want God to be jealous of you? Think about it. Your children, what if, they, if you had a child, what if it loved someone else more? Would you not get jealous? Yeah, God is jealous of you because he loves you. That is a sign of love. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. If the Lord avenges, it means he's gonna, the vengeance of what people have done you wrong and he will destroy and he will avenge you because he loves you. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. If you are for God, you are his friend. If you are against God, you are his enemy. The Lord is slow to anger. We know that. And great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The wrath of God. And the wrath of God, it doesn't mean um, some sudden burst of anger. It's not just, ah, lightning bolt, die. No, it's not some sudden burst of anger. You know, the word wrath means a, a, a settled displeasure of God against sin. He settles his displeasure against sin, settling it, the reaction of righteousness towards unrighteousness. There has to be that reaction. And so those who do not believe in the Son are what? Subject to the wrath of God. And the wrath of God abides in them. 
And, and you cannot get it twisted because it, it's not that God sends wrath upon that person. It's that they bring it upon themselves. They bring wrath upon themselves because they are all given a choice and will be without excuse. I can't stand it when people ask the question, how can a loving God send people to hell? Right? That question. My question to them is, how can a pure, how can a holy God even consider saving such filthy sinners? How can a holy God do that? Because of his love. They have no response to that. And you know, we may not like the sound of God's wrath and judgment, but it cannot be ignored. We cannot ignore it, or else I will be doing you guys a disfavor. So notice in closing, there is good news. Good news, the reason for the gospel, the message of the gospel is that we have all sinned against God. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And since God is pure, since he is perfect and, and a utterly holy being, you know, we would not be able to exist in his presence for even a moment in our sinful state. Just like no more than a snowflake can exist on the surface of the sun. When Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne in chapter 6, notice his response. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was doomed. He, he was f- afraid. And, and, and we were all doomed, and we were all subject to the wrath of God, yet for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes will not perish. But what? Have everlasting life. And you see the exclusivity of Christianity is factual and it's logical. No other religion provides salvation. No other faith. Christianity is not a religion. No other faith, no other belief provides salvation but the exclusivity of Christ because there can only be one truth. There can only be one truth. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, he says, for there is For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. How many mediators? How many people who can forgive, or excuse me, how how many can forgive our sins? How many can reconcile us to God? There is only one. Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your son. We thank you so much, Lord, for your love that you have proven to us, for your truth, Lord. Lord, give us more truth. Give us more knowledge, more revelation of who you are, Teach us more about you, Lord. Give us new ways to think. Lord, that we we may fully rely and fully believe in you. I thank you for your word, Lord, and the power in your word. Thank you for speaking to us, Jesus, because we believe that you are the one true God. And if there's anybody, Lord, that, that is here today that needed to know who you are, Lord, may you water the seed that was planted, Lord, and may you continue, Lord, 
to reveal yourself more to that person that needs you, that desires to love you and believe in you, Lord, because this is not our home. Lord, our treasure is in you. Our treasure is in heaven. And we thank you, Jesus, that you became the bridge, the mediator for us between a holy God and a sinful people. And it is only through you, Jesus, through your sacrifice, your blood. Wash us, Lord. Wash us clean, Lord. May you protect us throughout the week and may you just go forth in power. We love you, Lord. We honor you and we desire to do and have your will in our lives. We pray this now in your precious name. Amen.